From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Season three of the Netflix series Stranger Things is now out, and most of the episodes unfold in a place that may be familiar to you if you live in metro Atlanta. The show's fictional Starcourt Mall exists in the real world as Gwinnett Place Mall. Earth, America, Indiana, Hawkins, a growing patriotic community and a shining example of the American dream. Today, Hawkins is taking another step into the future with the brand new Star Court Mall. While the mall in Stranger Things is lively and bustling, the real one is dead. And that term doesn't mean the crowds are light. It refers to an empty, abandoned mall void of tenants. Dead malls are popping up across the country. Ellen Dunham-Jones researches how communities are grappling with these casualties of changing American consumption patterns. She's director of the Urban Design Program at Georgia Tech and an expert on urban redevelopment. Joining us in the studio, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. So many people do know a mall in or around their community, no longer open. But what do the real numbers look like? How many malls are dead or dying around? the country? Well, there are are approximately, at one point in time, 1,500 properties that were an enclosed mall. Today, we're down to 1,000. And of that 1,000, easily another 250, 300 are clearly dying. Um, The industry prefers to say evolving, because the reality is retail is constantly morphing. There's plenty of, uh, of changes that is that is normal, but the degree to which the just mall retail stores are closing is at absolute record levels. How about here in Georgia? So Georgia is very much dealing with it, paralleling the rest of the country. Metro Atlanta, there are approximately 32 properties that were enclosed malls. Already half of those are not enclosed malls. So we're actually sort of ahead in terms of the numbers uh, that have decl- have already closed. But we're actually, I think, surprisingly a little behind in terms of them really being retrofitted into very different new kinds of places. Yeah, and that's your work, how they're being redeveloped, how they're being redesigned and reused. But are those numbers, you said Georgia's a little behind other metropolitan areas? I'd say in terms of the redevelopments, what we're seeing in Georgia are a lot of partial redevelopments, partial re-inhabitations. It sort of surprises me that in Atlanta, the biggest redevelopment we have is the former Shannon Mall or Union Station which was in Union City, has been demolished and replaced with a soundstage for the movie industry Mm -hmm. and a very, very large, almost million-square-foot distribution center for... FedEx or UPS. Yeah. yeah, so these are the these are the ways that our economies are transforming, the kind Absolutely. of businesses that we're investing in. But let's go back to the 70s and 80s when the malls offered convenience, a gathering place for the community, parking, I think was an important thing there. You argued that in a place that is as hot and muggy as Georgia, they offered something else, air conditioning. Absolutely. I grew up in uh, suburban New Jersey when I was in high school, the first mall near us opened, and it was a real it was cool to go. And I mean literally, my high school wasn't air conditioned, my home wasn't air conditioned, where my dad worked wasn't air conditioned. Nowadays, that's not such a great bargaining chip. I mean, you know, most of us are living and working and driving in air conditioned Um, places, to the degree that mall shopping is a leisure activity, 
a lot of us are craving to be outdoors, even if it is a little hot and muggy. Mm. I think I so we're seeing that main streets are coming back. We're seeing uh, a lot of even new retail that are is being formatted more like a traditional. outdoor main street. Like a walkable main street kind Absolutely. of thing. Absolutely. Well, that, that has been a big story that brick and mortar stores have been struggling in the online shopping era as well. But you argue that that's just the final nail in the coffin of these malls. How did supply and demand of retail options and shoppers play a role? It's a rather astonishing I mean, how much square footage in the U.S. is devoted to retail? We have twice as much square footage as any other country. Canada and Australia look the closest to us, and we still have about double wow. the amount of retail square footage. And especially as big box stores really came into play in the 90s, they knew that sales per square foot were declining But they didn't have another way to make money. The answer was simply build more square feet. Hmm. Retail, of course, also depends on people with disposable incomes. And there's been a lot of talk about the hollowing out of the middle class in the United States. Is that borne out in terms of spending money at, at malls? Absolutely. And one sees a lot of patterns. Parts of the country where there in particular have been a decline in middle class jobs is where you see even more dead malls than in other places. Mm -hmm. But people still need a place to gather, obviously. Why do you think online shopping has become so much more successful than malls? People doing it individually inside of their homes. Well, the online shopping, it's certainly it's it's a big force and it continues to grow. But it's really still About 12% of total retail sales. It's not as if online is, is really the only thing to blame. We over-retailed, both as big box. Um, malls tend to locate at highway spoke intersections mm -hmm. around cities. We have built out the highway system. It's not only about online shopping, but it's certainly true that the retail that is doing well these days is retail that provides an experience you can't get online. Uh -huh. Brick and mortar will never compete with online for price or quantity, but it can compete on, qu on quality of experience. Mm -hmm. So you have some uh, malls providing the experience of luxury, marble floors and perfumed air, and others provide the experience of community. And it's local small businesses that you, uh, you, where you actually know some of these folks. Um, other retail is providing a, a huge explosion in the amount of food and beverage, gyms going into retail, former retail spaces, mm -hmm. uh, things you can't do online. So a serving community needs. But besides the loss of these meeting places in, in the communities where malls are dead, how else are they affected by closing of malls? They're affected in a lot of ways. Uh, when, you know, the retail dies, you, there's a lot of loss of tax revenue, loss of jobs, loss of those gathering spaces and activities. And it also tends to start to trigger a perception, at least, of a downward spiral of blight. Hmm. Again, if you are losing, you don't have as many options to shop in place in your community. You're probably going to go even with more online. And you, so you have that increase in the delivery trips. You mean, you mean like soon. the trucks on the road and the, the, the delivery trucks? The and delivery that. truck. The average suburban house generates about 10 trips per day. And yet, even though the number of trips that are made by the occupants has gone down slightly. 
the number of delivery trips to that house has skyrocketed. Well, we know what that's done to traffic. Absolutely. Ellen Dunham-Jones is with me. She is director of the Urban Design Program at Georgia Tech. She's a leading urbanist. And we're talking about transforming dead or abandoned malls, these empty shells of many millions across the country of square footage, of footage that have been kind of left behind, although some are transformed. And you've been researching, your research focuses on three steps to repurpose these empty spaces of malls. There's a redevelopment, re-inhabitation, and re-greening. Now, briefly define those three terms. Sure. Redevelopment means you're actually demolishing most of the mall um, or prop- retail property. It might be a strip mall. It might be big box. Uh, and you're redeveloping it. In many cases, we're seeing folks urbanize that site and put in a street grid, walkable blocks with retail at ground floor and office and apartments up above. Around the country, there's about 120 of those that are in various stages of completion, approximately 60 of them that have been completed. So that's that's really the redevelopment. Right. When so you're tearing it down, starting over. And starting over in a more walkable, urban, possibly transit served, but definitely mixed use um, configuration that allows that growing portion of the population that are seeking a more urban lifestyle, but are in are located in a suburban location. How about regreening? So regreening, I wish there were even more examples. It's only about 5% of my database right now. But Prior to the Clean Water Act in 1970, it was absolutely normal practice to drain the wetlands, culvert the creeks, and build commercial properties just right on top of places where, frankly, we never should have built. And now that more and more of the land upstream has been paved, we are getting more and more extreme storms with climate change. The, those And those culverts are aging. A lot of them are failing. We should be trying to depave a lot of this unnecessary retail and unnecessary parking spaces and reconstruct those wetlands and put in parks and stormwater parks to, to help us address a lot of uh, the changes in climate and things. All right. How about re-inhabitation? So is that taking those old spaces and building or putting new businesses Just, in them? Absolutely. Putting new uses. So And more community-serving uses. So the biggest trend actually is office space, moving into malls. Office is the number one. A lot of medical and educational facilities. So a school? Absolutely. Lots of schools from elementary all the way to college. Um, lots of really great examples, actually, of, of schools. Yeah. How about in Georgia? Any examples of redevelopment, reinhabitation, or re-greening here? Absolutely. So in Georgia, uh, again, as, as I said, we're, we're mostly doing partial redevelopments. There's an, um, So the Shannon Mall with the Atlanta Metro Studios and the big distribution warehouse for DHL. Uh, Underground Atlanta was, ha, is being redeveloped. That's really a not a typical mall. That's in, in downtown. Uh, but North Point Mall up in Alpharetta is has been approved to be a good chunk of their land is going to be redeveloped as mixed-use, walkable. They're putting in, replacing the, their Sears store with over 300 apartments, 15 acres of civic amenity space, trails, a stormwater park. Um, so that one I'm really looking forward to seeing. And then it's not so obvious, but Phipps Plaza, they've built a, a large apartment complex 
300-unit high-rise, and they're under construction right now, a 13-story office building. But you don't, you wouldn't necessarily know that it was actually the owners of the mall. They had owned this land adjacent to them. But they sort of see the writing on the wall and have said, well, ra- we had thought We'd own that land in case we wanted to expand the mall, but they're seeing that instead it benefits them to actually introduce more of a population on site who will use the mall. And so instead of the food court, it's becoming a food hall Mm -hmm. and, you know, it'll be more of a sense of a community than strictly a mall. So, so you mentioned Phipps, and I think of Lennox. You, that was that fits the bill of the luxury mall that you were talking about. I'm assuming. So, some of them seem to be thriving. What are they doing right? I think that the malls that are that are thriving have are constantly refreshing a lot of their their stores, so they don't get too stale. But I mean, you know, you do see certain patterns. If they have an Apple store, they're going to do really well. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's certain. Certain stores that will distinguish a lot of the high the the high end. This is such a an American story. You know, cars come around and people are worried about what's going to happen to the carriage and, of course, the telegraph and typewriters, all of that kind of thing. Should we care if old school malls become um, a chapter or a relic of history? I mean, it's funny. Uh, I really hope that at least one mall will get historic preservation status. And it should be a Victor Gruen mall. He was the original designer, and he designed... That's the barbell-shaped kind of mall? Well, he... Oh, he did some that are even more sci-fi. They're Mm -hmm. kind of triangular with domes. And, you know, I mean, at least one should definitely uh, be preserved. What's particularly interesting to me, actually, in terms of the preservation story, is the reverse of this. All things go in cycles. When the malls opened up in the 1970s, the 1970s was really the heyday. They started in the 50s, but by the 70s, we were cranking them out all over the place. And in the process, killed an enormous amount of retail in the the little mom-and-pop shops Mm -hmm. on main streets throughout small towns that were just wiped out uh, by the malls. Well, now that the malls are dying, guess what? A lot of those are coming back. Um, So Gwinnett Place Mall in Duluth, Georgia. Duluth has been reinvesting in their downtown. Parsons Alley has been this new extension, has won a lot of design awards. And so there's a real opportunity for communities to capture that social capital, that sense of a gathering space, that as the mall, uh, as malls are dying, and actually reinvest it in their original downtowns. And I'm really delighted to see there's a, a loads of examples, I think, of throughout Georgia of small towns, historic main streets that are coming back, and usually with some help, um, and even brand new downtowns, kind of Avalon kinds of places and um and, and you mentioned with some help, so tax incentives, grants from the city, state to, to kind of reinvest in downtowns? It's more people. It's honestly people. So one of, one of my favorite stories in um, Pleasant Ridge, Ohio, is a sub old suburb of Cincinnati that its little three-block downtown was, had just been vacant for years. And a group of volu- local volunteers found out that if they got it designated as a community entertainment district, 
the cost of a liquor license would go down from $25,000 to $2,500. They then targeted all the veteran food truck operators and said, hey, are you getting tired of driving around? Would you like a real brick-and-mortar location maybe in addition to your food truck. And it worked. And it's it's just fabulous to sort of see this repopulated little, down, little downtown. And it's quirky, it's local, it's very mom and pop. And it really, it was just, you know, done by a bunch of volunteers. And no, not an Orange Julius stand in sight. No, but there's an open drinking. I think they're allowed to, you know, Changes carry, everything. carry drinks around uh, within that three-block area. Ellen Dunham-Jones, a leading urbanist and director of the Urban Design Program at Georgia Tech and also host of the Redesigning Cities podcast series. It's also, of course, because, you know, there are students working on it. It's a video series, too. You can find a link at gbbnews.org. We invite your comments, questions, and civil complaints at our Facebook group, GPB Radio On Second Thought. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. You can email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org or leave us a message at 404-500-9457. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Alexis Thomason and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our dean of grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Our executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought.